May I have your attention, please? Your attention, please. End of life has been postponed. Please check back periodically for updates. Hello, I'm Karen Martineau, founder of Bevival.com, and this is the Long Before the End podcast. If you think about what matters in life, most people would say love, respect, self-expression, and health. And when asked what really matters at the end of life, experts say love, connection, gratitude, and comfort. So now ask yourself those same two questions, and then begin the process of preparing to prepare. That's what we call death literacy. In this recording, we're going to talk about the role humor and comedy play at the end of life by looking through the eyes of a comedian, a cartoonist, and a med student who dabbles in stand-up. It's not what you think, so hang around. As all of you out there know, we've been doing this podcast series as a follow-on to the monthly book reviews that Bevival hosted on Facebook. But where do those books come from? Well, they come from our recommendations, from friends and colleagues. They come serendipitously from listening to listeners, NPR, Fresh Air, news, blogs. And sometimes they come by chance. As background, I love strolling through bookstores. I love seeing what the latest titles are, checking out if my favorite authors have written anything new. And such was the case last year when I found myself at the Barnes & Noble in Union Square in Manhattan. Looking over a stack of nonfiction book titles, a book with a light blue cover caught my eye. Actually, it was the title that caught my eye, Dead People Suck by Laurie Kilmartin. I picked it up, read the dust jacket's back cover and inside flap, flipped through a couple of pages, and was hooked. This was definitely a book that I felt would be of interest to both us and you, the listeners, and hopefully worthy of a podcast. When Jed told me about the book, I went through a range of reactions. Dealing with death in a humorous way? Just the title alone created a knee-jerk reaction. No, it's inappropriate, Jed. Besides, we don't do how-to-die books. Up until now, we've been selecting fiction, novels, important books, and this was definitely nonfiction. But Jed prevailed. Wait, wait, you haven't even gotten to the good part yet. Well, yeah, that's where things got really edgy for me. As many of you who have listened to earlier episodes of this podcast series know, my recent bout with cancer ended well. But I still need to go to Memorial Sloan Kettering for quarterly checkups, and I spent a lot of time in their waiting rooms. So there I was, in the waiting room, sitting among other waiting patients, reading the book titled Dead People Suck. Okay, in retrospect, maybe it really wasn't the best place to be reading that particular book because the air in a cancer center waiting room is really somber. So I'm reading and laughing, like out loud laughing. People are looking at me with eyes that are saying, this is wrong. It's like the joke you shouldn't or don't want to laugh at, but you just can't help yourself. The setting and the book were at odds with my experience because I'm there laughing and I'm feeling guilty that I'm laughing. But come on, the chapter titles are really funny. For example, bad news, grief is not a calorie burner. Or the first time you tell a telemarketer she can't come to the phone right now because she is dead. Or cremation, hire a professional or DIY. So while I'm finding this book extremely funny... The author didn't write this to maximize the joke. Each page contains a unique combination of humor, 
and poignancy. It's fresh, it's profound, and it has a sense of humanity while at the same time it remains incredibly profane and vulgar. Yep, just like I told you. But, you know, this book is not for the faint at heart, given the salty language she peppers throughout. But it actually reads like a novel. And we both realized that there were actually a number of echoes to some of the books we've previously reviewed in the sense that it was provocative and it offered a perspective of life and death that isn't often discussed. This is what led us to explore the taboo of humor and death. Why were we wincing? What was wrong or unnerving about humor and death? Are we embarrassed or do we feel guilty? You know, I think it's a much bigger issue than just relating to death. Aren't those questions the same for jokes about race or religion or other societally sensitive subjects? Sure, but too broad a topic for us to discuss here. So let's just focus on death because that's what these podcasts are all about anyway, right? One of the things that reading and discussing the book Dead People Suck has done for us is open up a very rich new conversation about the overall issues surrounding humor and death. But while there are so many avenues down which we could pursue, we started with that sense of taboo, that question about, can we really laugh in the face of death? We spoke with the author of Dead People Suck, Laurie Kilmartin, an Emmy-nominated writer for The Conan O'Brien Show, a stand-up comedian, the author of a New York Times bestseller, and the co-host of her own podcast. So Laurie, are you alone out there, or is death humor gaining popularity? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think a lot more comics are talking about it. I think comedy's changed a lot in the last 10 years, and part of it is an influence from storytelling, but it's gotten a lot more truthful while still remaining stand-up. So uh, there's a lot of people talking about it. And, you know, every comic from my generation, you know, all of us are losing parents left and right. So, yeah, it's, it's becoming a more common topic for sure. If you compare your writing, your comedy, your performing, or that of your peers from 10 years ago to the present, what differences are you noticing? Now I'm noticing I start from a much darker place almost for every joke I write <laughs> because I'm a mother also and it's driving me insane and stuff. But I, I start from a darker place and then maybe I end on a more upbeat, emotionally upbeat place, but it's still started way darker. I'm not sure if that's completely tied to death or the death of my father or that's just getting older. Just as Lori was talking about how she's seen comedy changing a lot over the past 10 years, how it's gotten darker, I think that's a combination of the times we're living in now, as well as the evolution of the current forms of storytelling. But humor and death have been around since time immemorial. Some say you can trace it back to Aristophanes in 3rd or 4th century BC. Others consider Jonathan Swift the originator of gallows humor. Then there's also a great quote from Oscar Wilde, who on his deathbed said, My wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One of us has got to go. There are still many comedians who consider death too taboo a subject. L.A. Times columnist Pat Morrison asked Laurie, why do you think our culture is so bad at dealing with death and dying? And Laurie responded, in this country, death is treated like an embarrassing lifestyle choice. NPR Weekend Edition host Scott Simon began tweeting his experience of sitting at the bedside of his dying mother. His 1.2 million followers listened in to his intimate and remarkable chronicling of life expiring. Humor had a place on the Twitter feed. Just about a year later, Lori found herself going through a similar experience 
using her Twitter feed as a way to process the loss. Well, for me, it's figuring out how to manage a situation or an emotion. And when my dad was dying, it was just larger than anything I'd ever encountered in my life emotionally. And so I just tried to take little pieces of it and see if I could sew them up a little bit and close them, you know. And that's how I felt like every time I was writing a joke. It was also a way to remember what was happening because everything was happening so fast. And these little tiny moments were going by so quickly. I wrote tons of notes when my dad was dying because I just wanted to remember everything in addition to tweeting and stuff. And, you know, let's just do, you know, funny chapters about anything I could remember. (laughs) All I had to work with was somebody I loved, you know, in hospice for 10 days and then the aftermath of that. And I was just trying to write them down on the internet, I guess, so that I wouldn't forget them. I haven't looked at my tweets in a long time, but Sometimes I do, and I'm like, oh, yeah, Dad, and he had this little hyacinth flower, and for some reason, I got really obsessed with it the last day or two. I guess I was trying to to not forget it, you know? Humor is Lori's bread and butter. It's her profession. So it was natural for her to turn to her humor as her coping mechanism. And you realize, oh, my God, this person's leaving, and... When the person is obviously dying, you may not even see them tomorrow. So you you try to imprint every second that you have with them in your soul so that you never forget it. And I guess for me, writing jokes was a way to, to do that. Readers of The New Yorker are most likely familiar with Emily Flake's cartoons. Emily is also a writer, performer, teacher, illustrator, and co-host of a popular parenting review. So as a cartoonist, there's this reoccurring theme of death and dying in your work. Or, as you've said, I facilitate uncomfortable conversations in a four-beat format. Take us through the creative process in finding humor in something so serious. Sure. Basically, and I think this is probably true of anybody who writes jokes for a living, humor is basically the way I process everything. So all the big life things, you know, like birth and marriage and death and all these things that, like, real humans make art about, I make pissy little jokes. Well, are there specific inspirations that, especially as it relates to death or dying, that inform you on that? I mean, I think about death a lot because, you know, I have a child, so and I feel like you kind of think about death all the time, especially once you have a kid, because you're aware that, you know, you're going to die and leave them, or God forbid, they will die before you do. And so I would say that death is part of my work just because it's one of my, I don't know if I want to say preoccupations, because I don't think I think about it more than like regular people, but (laughs) although I don't know, maybe I do, (laughs) but it's definitely something that I think about a lot. Given that death is the elephant in the room, how did you learn to make death funny? I mean, kind of like going back to what I was saying before, I think it's a matter of just how somebody who is a person who makes jokes, I feel like that's how we all kind of address serious things. So it kind of follows that that's how that would be my approach to it, I guess. Like, I'm pretty bad at addressing anything straight on. So I think that's just another, you know, it's a basic coping mechanism. I really enjoy your work. And one of my favorite cartoons of yours shows a mother and a daughter looking at a Ouija board. And the mother says, it's like texting, but for dead people. Now that's really funny. And it's not stinging. It's poignant, and that's one of the things that makes it work so well for me. Well, I think humor without empathy is 
soulless. If there's one thing that I consider sort of a creative North Star, it's trying to keep a sense of empathy in what I do, because that's important to me. And I mean, I take joke writing and comedy very seriously, but that sense of empathy is the engines that really drives what I do, I would say. It feels sort of self-aggrandizing to describe myself as an empathetic person, but that's just an important part of what I try to do in my work. Julia Hirsch, a frequent contributor to Tricycle, wrote an article titled, What Buddhism and Dark Comedy Have in Common. In it, Hirsch said that comedians worth their salt know that neuroses, awkwardness, and dissatisfaction are often the best places to plumb for material and that comedians can be a powerful medium for communicating the unsettling truths in life. Karen and I met James Bellardi at a Grand Round symposium titled, Is Death Modern? James is a medical student, a stand-up comedian. He teaches improv to other med students at Columbia University School of Medicine. And he's also a pretty prolific writer. In his articles, Laughing at Death, he also touched on the taboo of death when he wrote, Death is a fertile ground for comedy. We asked him to expand on that, and what was interesting was his response mirrored Laurie's perspective. Although, as we continued, we came to realize this was not an anomaly by any stretch of the imagination. So what I really meant sort of there is that often the most popular topics for humor are usually widely relatable. Anything that people from all backgrounds basically have experience with provides a lot of comedy because we really tend to laugh at humorous perspectives on familiar themes. And in addition to that, humor has always really thrived with ideas that have some amount of social taboo or discomfort about them, kind of pushing the boundaries of what's considered okay to discuss. So when I was writing that, even though an obvious majority of those engaging in death humor haven't yet experienced it directly, Dying is something everyone will experience personally, and many have experienced sort of peripherally. So it's a great example of one of those widely felt topics for comedy with that kind of element of discomfort that makes it a little more enticing. Humor is primarily a human emotion, largely, almost solely human, and especially a social one. Bellardi also touched upon the value of having a coping mechanism, but from a different perspective. It's interesting to think about humor and death from a clinician's point of view. Is it ever appropriate? I think for clinicians, especially the humor that's more shared by clinicians, kind of behind closed doors, um, not bullying humor, but just humor about their work, is a very important tension release for a lot of clinicians, especially in the moment. And what I mean by that is that all healthcare workers face deeply difficult emotions as part of their average workday. And there are a lot of healthy techniques to process these in addition to humor and to stay mentally fit. But many of those require dedicated time for reflection, introspection. We think of things like journaling. But in the midst of a busy day, a physician really might need something more quickly accessible, like a relevant joke, to just push aside any negative rising emotions and just get through their day functioning effectively. And then they can worry about the more deep reflection later when they have time. So I often see it as that sort of temporary psychological shield for them. Um, I know you have a personal story about how dark humor contributed to the healing process. Do you feel comfortable talking to us about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to share a little bit of that story with my mom. So when I was 12, my mom had a string of health issues within a very short period of time. She had an undiscovered ruptured appendix for weeks, developed Bell's palsy, which is a temporary paralysis of half the face suffered from ovarian cysts, 
and ultimately diagnosed with an aggressive form of leukemia. I should say she's very healthy now, but at the time she had a terrifying prognosis and was in the hospital constantly. And so whenever my dad took my three younger siblings and I to visit, humor was often how we normalized this scary situation. We were all either 12 or younger, and we helped her feel less alone because we joked with her just like we would at home. And often about some of her medical issues, it was very interesting because I remember the temporary paralysis of half her face was especially ripe for joking because it was so physical. And as a bunch of rowdy Batman fans, we'd mentioned she was like the villain Two-Face, but nicer. And she'd love laughing at our silliness with going on little rants about that. And she'd even join in and tell us to sit on her nice side, not the mean side, so we could see her smiles and her laughter on the non-paralyzed side. And it was just humor like that, which, in retrospect, we all know really helped shore her emotional reserve during her struggle. You know, there's real pathos in what James said there, how he and his siblings found a way to deal with the seriousness of their mother's illnesses. And pathos is also very apparent in Laurie's book. While she's taking a comedic eye to the unsettling things happening with her father, she's also expressing some deep emotions that made me really feel for her. I don't know if she was purposely trying to do that as opposed to report on the situation, as she said, and you realize this person's leaving. Reminds me of that Mark Twain quote, comedy is just tragedy plus time. Death can be wild and huge and terrifying. Towards the beginning of Dead People Suck, Lori wrote, I wasn't aware of death or of dying until one day the phone rang. Reflecting back on our earlier podcasts, this is what we were referring to as that check engine light moment. You never know when it will enter your life. Each person is going to process that check engine light moment in a different way. For Lori, her moment started with that phone call. For me, it was a simple blood test. You know, I think there's another key point going on here. You talked about the different ways that you and Lori reacted to your own check engine light moments. But I think you and I reacted to this book in different ways. As you said, you've already had your own check engine light moment. You've already faced your own mortality. I haven't. So long before your end, you've begun to embrace what death might be for you. I'm not there yet. I looked at her book not just as a memoir of those events, but also as a how-to guide in dealing with the impending death of a loved one, especially the way she questioned many aspects and interactions with doctors, hospitals, insurance companies, you name it. And I could relate to her acerbic wit because I recently went through many of those same things with the passing of my father-in-law. No, for me, it was different. As you said, I've been there. So it wasn't as much a how-to for me as it was a funny and touching diary of how she dealt with mortality. But I get your point. For many people who haven't dealt with death firsthand, this book might give them a fresh perspective. Comedy of the truth-telling sort can help us confront the painful or unsettling. Humor can change the way we interpret a situation so it doesn't seem so threatening. I don't remember who said it, but they said, humor illuminates elements of death that are invisible to us because we have a tendency to occlude things that make us feel uncomfortable. And we've just scratched the surface. How can we as a society improve our end-of-life experience? Well, you can support this podcast by subscribing and rating us. And if you're on social, follow our daily feeds. I'm Karen Martineau, founder of Bevival.com. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.